You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. It's really good to see everybody this morning. I trust that everybody had a good Thanksgiving week. I hope it was good for you and for your family. And I know you're looking forward to tomorrow morning. That'll be here before we know it. If you have your Bible this morning, you can open it to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And Lord willing, make our way through verse 38. That's Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 13 through verse 38. If you're new with us this morning, just to kind of give you a little context of what we do here, is we do preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so uh, this isn't random, this is just where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. And I'll, I'll let you know up front, there's a lot for us to cover this morning. Um, and I'll also give you this disclaimer in that it has been incredibly convicting for me personally. Um, and so if, if you're new with us, uh, I'll have to excuse any um, what you might see as unwarranted emotion um, that, that, that comes from me this morning, but I think you'll understand more of, of why it's something that is very impactful, not only for me and for our elders, but also for each one of you that's in the congregation. And so before we get started, I want to ask for the Lord's help. So if you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather this morning in your name. And it's our desire to continue to worship you through the preaching and teaching of your word. And Father, we also acknowledge that in, in order for anything meaningful to happen today, in order for anything to happen with any sort of eternal significance, um, you're going to have to move, you're going to have to do what only you can do. And so, God, we ask for that. Holy Spirit, we ask You to open our hearts and open our eyes to the truth. Father, help us to understand the dynamic that we see in this section of Acts and how it applies to this congregation. God, give us passion for all things eternal. Father, help us to be warned this morning to not be deceived to not be deceived by our own hearts, and to not be deceived by the lies of the world. And so Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and move among us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you remember the first part of Acts chapter 20, it was quite the story. Um, I don't have a whole lot of time because of the content we have to, to give you a lot of overlap, but if you remember... Uh, Paul was preaching, and it was one of his um, last times to be with this Christian church in Troas, and he's preaching, um, and he preaches so long, evidently, that uh, Eutychus falls out the window, a young man falls out the window, and apparently he falls to his death, and, and Paul rushes out and, um, and puts him in his arms, and uh, it, uh, Scripture teaches that, that the man was alive. Paul says, hey, his life is in him. Um, you know, they, I'm sure they celebrate that, but they all kind of gather back up. Paul continues to preach. And then he makes his way out of, of that city. And we see that in verse 12 of chapter 20. And it says, And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And so we pick up in verse 13. And there is, uh, from 13 to 17, there's a good bit of travel that takes place. So I'm going to read through this section and then I'm going to show you a map just to give you a little bit of a visual of, of what this travel looks like. So in verse 13, if you read with me, But going ahead to the ship... We set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, uh, intending himself to go by land. 
And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the next day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so Paul is making his way towards Jerusalem, um, and, and he's bringing his companions with him and his counterparts with him. But it's interesting that Paul, he wants to travel on land by himself, and he, he sends everyone else by ship. He wants to bypass Ephesus, and I think we'll understand more of why he wants to bypass Ephesus once we get into the meat of this passage. But I personally think that the reason that he wants to bypass Ephesus is because he loves the people deeply there and he knows that when he goes there, what he's going to have to tell them is what he's going to tell their elders in just a second is I'm never going to see you again. Like you're not going to see my face again. And his love for them would insinuate that that would cause that to be a, a, a longer stay than what he is willing to stay or what he thinks he should stay as he's led by the Spirit of God. So let me show you this map. Just to give you a little bit of detail. So Paul was in Troas. That's where he preached. And Eutychus fell out the window. And all that fun stuff happened. They dropped down south to Assos. And then they sail to Mytilene. And then they come down. I can't read it from back there. And then they come down through this, this sort of western island here. And then they make their way all the way to Miletus. You can see in Miletus, that's going to be where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. You see Ephesus is due north of Miletus, and so he bypasses Ephesus in order to get to Miletus. And then whenever he gets to Miletus, he calls the Ephesian elders, which is about a 20-mile journey by land for them to come down and to meet with him. So look down in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, before we jump into verse 18. Verse 18 begins a, a speech, a, a sermon, if you will, but it, it's to a small group. It's, it's to this group of elders from Ephesus. And so I want to read through this, and I might give you a little bit of commentary along the way, but it will be limited because we're going to spend the remainder of our time unpacking this speech um, and applying it to our lives and understanding the reason that Paul says what he says here this morning. But one thing that's important to try to fight to understand in Scripture, and it can be difficult, is that Scripture has a tone. I've said this before, kind of jokingly, kind of not, but they obviously didn't have emojis. Okay, so we can read something, and, and, and really, like the way that we feel at the moment, or what we think we understand at the moment, or whatever's going on in our context, or, or whatever tone the text is, is read in is sort of what we kind of apply to it, but every text of Scripture does in fact have a tone, and this one certainly has a tone, and it is, it is weighty, it, it is, I mean, there's some sadness, there's some seriousness, there's some intensity, and so I want you to know that from, from this time forward in this message, there's, there's going to be some intensity, um, there's probably not going to be a lot of sadness, but there could potentially be conviction, like there's going to be a tone um, in this sermon from this point forward because this speech this text has a very specific tone and i think if we don't understand the tone in which he's writing and speaking to these elders then we can really miss the seriousness of what he has to say to them so read with me beginning in verse 18 after the elders come to paul he says you yourselves know 
I'm not going to say this again, but I want to make this point. He cannot say that if what he's about to say is false. You tracking? Like if I stand before you and I say, hey, you guys know, then whatever I'm about to say, you should know. And if you don't know, and if what I'm saying is false, then you probably, some of you, because I know you, you might immediately call me out. Hey, hey, hold up. That's not true. You haven't done that. You haven't said that. We haven't seen that from you. And so Paul starts this way, you yourselves know, so what he's about to say has to be 100% true, or they're going to shut him down as soon as he starts lying. You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house. Testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Repentance toward God. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the Gospel. Of the grace of God. And now behold. I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Will see my face again. Therefore. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, 
that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Brothers and sisters and friends, I am deeply moved by this speech. It shows us so much of Paul's heart. It shows us so much of his view of Christian leadership. It shows us so much of the dynamic that elders are to elders, pastors, overseers are to relate to those that have been put under their care and under their watch. And the reality is, is the future of the Ephesian church hangs on how its elders serve the Lord. Think of it. This is the last time He's going to see them. These are the last words that He's going to tell them. And He thought it most beneficial to have a conversation with the elders, with the leaders, with the pastors. In Paul's mind, as the elders go, so goes the church in Ephesus. I think you might be beginning to understand why this had so much personal weight and conviction on, on me. As a pastor, and I don't want you to check out. I don't want you to think, oh, well, this is just a section of Scripture that's for like a pastor's conference. It, it, it certainly is. It certainly is. And I'm sure it's been preached many times at, at pastor's conferences and pastors have had conversations. But, but there's an important dynamic to understand here as the church as a whole. It's important for us all to understand the way that God has gifted us and the way that God has structured us as the people of God and how He expects us to function. It's important for you that, that, that are not pastors to understand what the call of a pastor is for the sake of accountability. It's important for you to understand what the call of a pastor is so that you can know what to expect and what you should expect if you find yourself looking for a church that is a biblical church. And so it has tremendous application for us all, but pastors are, or elders are called. They're, they're, they're gifted by God to lead His people. One of the primar, uh, primary things that a pastor is supposed to do is serve as an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this to the church at Corinth, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There are specific qualifications that are for pastors. That is true, 100% true. But the vast majority of the qualifications that are for pastors are also for Christians. And so pastors are to be, in a sense, the lead Christians, the lead examples to the congregation. And so I think we see some essentials here. Some essentials of Christian ministry, and, and that is the way that this is framed up, because I had to be true to the text. It, it is going to be speaking about Christian leadership, pastoral leadership, elders, overseers, all those words in the New Testament are interchangeable. However, there's great application for us all. So essentials of Christian ministry that I see in Paul's speech. The first one is humility. In verse 19, he starts this way. He says, I've served the Lord. First of all, he uses the word serve. I mean, that, that insinuates something. That insinuates one that's willing to serve, to, to go low, to be willing to do things that maybe other people aren't willing to do, to be the leader of service, which is exactly what was modeled in our Lord Jesus. 
But not only does he serve, he serves the Lord, which also shows humility. He's acknowledging that there is a Lord. And so in pastoral leadership and in the function of a church, the pastor is not the Lord. You can say amen. That's good news. He's not the Lord. And so Paul here is serving the Lord, he acknowledges that there is a Lord, there is a King, there is an ultimate authority, and it's not me. It's the first thing he has to say is to be humble, to be yielded to the Lord, to be submissive to His absolute rights to control your life. In a sense, to use a biblical analogy, to be willing to be clay in the potter's hand. But there's also another sense to this humility. It's not only acknowledging that we are uh, like less than the Lord and He is King and we are not, but there's also this reality I think you see in verse 24 when he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. Now think about that because that, that does not fit into pop psychology. That does not fit into boosting self-esteem. Like it doesn't seem to, because we read that at face value, you go, wait a minute, you don't think your life is precious, but this is essentially what Paul means. He means that his will for his life is less than God's. That's what he means. Like what's most precious to Paul is the path that the Lord has laid out for him in his providence and in his sovereignty that leads him ultimately to the Lord. So he's acknowledging that anything that I might think is precious, anything that I might have considered of value, he's, he says this to the church, church at Philippi in Philippians 3, anything that was former, I realize now, is actually rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. And so there's this reality that he recognizes that his life is, is, is not of any value compared to the value that comes through the gospel. And he goes on to say, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul considered himself to be a debtor to all people. Which is the opposite of what I wrestle with, and I, I, I'm assume that you wrestle with this. It's the opposite of Entitlement. It's the opposite of thinking and looking around at people and like what they owe you. Or what they can give you. Paul's mindset, because of the gospel work in his heart and because of the transformation that came through Jesus, was what can I do for you for the glory of God? Not this, this sense of expecting things from other people. Paul didn't dwell on what people owed him. He dwelled on what he could do for others. And I think if we could understand why, it would be because the grace of God makes you a debtor. Somebody who is just consumed with and infatuated with and moved by and meditating on the grace of God, that's what it produces in our hearts. It produces this attitude of humility to when we look around at those that are next to us, we don't have this sense of we're better than they are. We don't have this sense of you owe me. We have this sense of humility. Because we know that what we've received through the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ is not what we deserved. And so the first essential is humility. The second thing that I see here is empathy. You might have noticed in verse 19 when he says he serves the Lord with all humility. And then he says, and with tears. He says the same thing in verse 31. He mentions tears. Now, tears can come from pain. 
Tears can come from loss. Tears can come from frustration. But tears can also come from joy. And I, I don't know exactly which tears Paul had in mind here, but, but I think his, his experience, as we've seen through the book of Acts, um, has been a little bit of all of it. Maybe more of tears of suffering and frustration and pain, but there's also been tears of joy. Now, um, I, I don't want some of you dudes uh, to check out on me here. This doesn't mean Paul was a crier. That would not have been impressive. He was empathetic. And I think we can learn something about serving the church and serving the Lord is that it means getting so intensely involved in people's lives that you cry over them. You care. If, if you're crying over people, if, if you're shedding tears, it's because you care. And if we're not, I want us to pray that God would help us to see what's at stake in the battle of faith and hope and holiness. You know, one of the things that was not communicated to me before I became a pastor and as a young pastor was, was the, the pain that would be involved in watching the parable of the sower play out. I don't know how many deer hunters you have out here, but like when you plant green fields or any farmers, when you plant something, um, isn't it interesting how like, like when you plant it and, and like 99% of the field looks incredible. And then there's this bare spot. <laughs> and I cannot help but focus on the bare spot. What happened to those seeds? And in a sense, pastoral ministry is the same. I, I really think pastors should spend time with farmers. I really do, because farmers have to eventually get to a point where God has to cause the growth. But a pastor's heart says, what about, this? What about that seed? I, I know there's 10,000 seeds that are blooming and blossoming and bearing fruit and it's wonderful. But what about those 10 seeds? And the parable of the sower teaches us that the seed is scattered and sometimes they're choked out. Sometimes the birds get them. Sometimes they were cast on rocks and they, and they don't come up. And, and I did not anticipate the, the pain and the burden that would come with watching that play out with brothers and sisters in Christ. At least at the time I thought they were in Christ. And they're, I, I hear the gospel out of their mouth. I see the gospel lived out in their lives. And then all of a sudden, like almost out of nowhere, they walk away and they've just left it all. So painful. But there's also a temptation for all of us in this. And that you see that so many times that your heart just gets calloused. And you fight off this temptation of, well, it's just not worth it. Like, like what's the point? If, if you can invest, 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 and, and this is true of me, and then something crazy could happen, or I go, or, or whatever, and like, all of a sudden, let's just say, Hank is just, like, he left his family, he left his church, he's living in, I don't want to say a place, because then y'all will think I'm, Assume that place is bad, but probably west. Anyway, but, but seriously, it can happen. And, and so these tears that Paul is shedding, yes, there's suffering, yes, there's pain, yes, there's frustration, but it's not just this physical element. It's this emotional attachment, it's this involvement, it's this deep love and care that he has, brothers and sisters, for people. 
I think that's why I didn't want to go to Ephesus. He's like, I, I don't think I'll be able to leave. But he knew it was best if he did. There's humility, there's empathy. And then there's defending. The third one is defending. And you see it in the end of verse 19. Actually, look at verse 29 through 31. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Think about that language. Fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And he says, therefore, be alert. Paul told the church at Corinth that at Ephesus he had to fight, are you ready for this? With beast. I don't know exactly what he means there. But it must have been intense. But he says the Ephesian elders will have to fight with fierce wolves. And I think the point is clear. Christian leadership, part of the reality of it, a necessity of it, is that we fight. Is that we understand the seriousness of the spiritual battle and the spiritual war that's going on around us. And that we're not these just passive, weak, really being careful with my words here, men, lowercase m, men. But that we care. And that caring is not just an emotional thing, but it's also a protective thing as a shepherd is with his flock. And, he, and, and, and that's the analogy. He's saying, look, fierce wolves are going to come in and what fierce wolves do is they devour sheep. That's what they do. So shepherds protect the sheep. Shepherds are therefore alert when there's a threat of wolves coming in. In Jude chapter 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, I love this phrase, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There, there is this reality of contending for the faith. And did you notice that Paul even says that these wolves will come from within? There's a possibility that in this group of elders from Ephesus, that one or two or multiple of them are these fierce wolves that he's referencing. And these wolves will seek to perverse things about the message of the gospel. They will seek to perverse things about the life and ministry of others. And the threat is that they will lead sheep astray. Fierce wolves come in and they take advantage of the sheep for personal gain. And Jesus loves His bride too much. He loves His bride too much to let that happen. As, as He said in this speech, as Paul said in this speech, He's paid a great price for His bride. And He's left her in the care of pastors and elders. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Now, now, now listen, now, if, if, you, 
if there's this thought in your mind of, wow, he's preaching this sermon, it seems a little self-serving. I don't, I don't know how many of us would want to just voluntarily sign up for this last part of what's highlighted in red. They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has left in the care of pastors his bride. That in which he has paid a tremendous price for, that in which is most precious to him. Now imagine that, men, husbands, like imagine if you leave your wife in the care of someone and you say, hey, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, but I want you to take care of her. I love her, I've done this for her, she's precious to me, she's holy, I, I do not want her to be stained, I don't want her to be blemished, I want her to remain pure, so you're in charge. You are in charge, and when I come back, I want her to look this way and I want her to be this way. What are you going to expect when you come back? Husbands. Being a pastor, it, it, it's, a, it's a serious call. And it's important that we understand this dynamic so that we all understand the danger that we're in if we don't take seriously the way that the Lord has gifted us and the way that the Lord has structured us. There is this reality of pastoral ministry that we contend for the faith, that we fight and we understand there will be fierce wolves and we need to have the courage to stand up against them for the sake of souls. Which leads easily to the next essential, it's courage. In verse 20 and verse 27, Paul says, I did not shrink, meaning he did not back away. And when you put verse 20 and 27 together, it seems that, especially in 27 where he says, I, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What exactly does he mean there? It seems that there are parts of the whole counsel of God which is teaching, it, it, again, like, not, like verse by verse. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be self-serving here. I'm just letting you know if you want to know why do we preach verse by verse, why do we preach the whole Bible, it's because we feel that our call is to give you the whole counsel of God. And Paul says, I did not shrink back from giving you the whole counsel of God, which would insinuate that there are parts of the whole counsel of God that are absolutely profitable, but not easy to teach or easy to hear. And he did not, for the sake of their souls, he was courageous enough to preach the whole counsel of God, regardless of how it was received, regardless of what the culture said about it. He preached the Word. A good pastor does not decide what to teach by what is popular or easily accepted. If it's part of God's counsel, it has to be understood as profitable and it must be taught as something that is profitable. And so not shrinking back implies courage to give something less than popular and confidence in the authority and the efficiency, sufficiency of Scripture. Next, is these, these elders were to be proclaimers. You see that in verse 20. Now, now, proclaiming is different than teaching. And I do have to speed up here. Proclaiming is different than teaching. A, a proclamation is when you announce. It's when you herald something. It's a proclamation. In, in a proclamation, the emphasis does not fall on explaining the meaning or the application of the Scripture. The emphasis falls on bringing news or announcing something with intensity and with passion. There is a difference between explaining to someone how to play the game of football 
and proclaiming to them that you won. And some of you, in the last 24 hours, have done some proclaiming. But there's a difference, right? Today the conversations are more about, well, what happened? Like, what are the details? Where's the emphasis? Why did this happen then? Why did they do this or not do this and vice versa? But the proclamation or the heralding is, we won! And so there is a proclaiming aspect to the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Christ is King. He won. He's not, not will win. Not did win one game and we hope He wins the next ones and makes the playoffs. <laughs> he won. Christ is King. There's a proclamation. that There's a difference in proclaiming with intense passion and teaching. Next we see that, that the pastors are to be about the profit of others. You notice that in verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And, and so the question that has to be answered here is, what is profitable? What is it that profits people? Is it self-esteem? Is it money? Is it feeling good? What's most profitable to the people and what's most profitable comes through preaching the whole counsel of God but also what is most profitable is when they see the preacher or the elder or the pastor or the leader that's proclaiming the whole counsel of God with a life that matches it so it's speech and it's living in Jeremiah chapter 6 Jeremiah warns prophets of his day well, he warns about them. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Now, no, notice what he says, saying, peace, peace. Now, if we just stop there, we would go, oh, yeah, they said peace, peace. That sounds wonderful. Everybody gather around these prophets. Let's hold hands and let's kumbaya it up. They said peace, peace. But notice, he says, there is no peace. Essentially, pro prophets, like proclaimers, like, what are you doing? You're just... Proclaiming a message that feels good, but it's a pseudo-peace. It's a pseudo-hope. It's temporal, it's not eternal. And so, these Ephesian elders are to give the church at Ephesus what is actually profitable. What is eternally profitable, not what brings temporary peace and comfort. And, and, and so the question for us to ask, and for what is... And, and, and for you to listen for is what is eternally profitable for me? That's just a great question to process through all of life's decisions. What is in this situation eternally profitable? And it must be something that an elder and a pastor understands. He has to know what is actually profitable for people eternally. Next. They teach the whole counsel of God. We, we mentioned that. But they do it publicly and they do it privately. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says that one of the qualifications of an elder or pastor is to be an apt teacher. He, he should have the gift of teaching. And it's because that elders or pastors are charged with being the doctrinal guardians of the flock. It's through the ministry and the teaching gift of the pastors and the elders to preserve true doctrine and defend it and to build it into the people. Now, now, this type of teaching is different from proclaiming. 
teaching takes a portion of Scripture and methodically explains it. To say it maybe in a more simple way, teaching emphasizes making it make sense. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, this is one of my favorite passages. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And here's the gift of teaching. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. But there's a public aspect to the preaching that these Ephesian elders are to do, but there's also a private emphasis. And so it's necessary and right to publicly, which is what we're doing right now, to publicly proclaim and to publicly teach the whole counsel of God. But there's also that these elders and these pastors in Ephesus are to be um, intentional about the impersonal crowd in, in the small group type settings where the word could be more closely applied and personal questions could be asked. And all of this is to what end, right? For what purpose? Well, look at verse 21. We get to the content of what Paul was proclaiming and teaching and testifying and hoping for. In 21 it says, Testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all to this end. The humility, the courage, the empathy, all of those essentials that were mentioned are not just for those things in and of themselves. All of those are in the hope that men and women and boys and girls, both Jew and Greek, come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the hope. That's the cry. That's the plea. This word testifying in the Greek means to Bear witness in the sense of taking an oath in court or testifying of what you know. But it also means to charge or to warn or to tell with a gravity or seriousness because the reality of, of the matter. And, and, and so in, in all of these things, and in, in what you should hear, and I, I want to say that you should have this too. But pastors and elders should lead the way in this earnestness and this seriousness and this spiritual intensity of what's real, of what's eternal. Like sometimes when we're, like you should go, like, why is he so passionate? Do you have those friends that you're going, man, like, they share the gospel with a lot of people. It just seems kind of random. Why do they do that? Well, it could be. Because they have an earnestness. They have a seriousness. They have an understanding. They have this weight of burden of what is real, meaning what is eternal. And they understand that every single person that they lock eyes with is a soul. And that every single person that they lock eyes with has a need. And their greatest need is Jesus Christ. And they have that message. And I think they would look at us and go, so you going to keep that bottled up? Why was Paul this way? Why was Paul so passionate? I think the easy answer is because he understood that no faith and no repentance have eternal consequences. True? If there's no faith and there's no repentance to Jesus Christ, 
and faith in Jesus Christ, and repentance toward Jesus Christ, there are eternal consequences. But I want to remind you from Acts chapter 26, as Paul shares his own testimony, we'll see this in a few weeks. This is Paul sharing his testimony before Agrippa. And it says, but arise and stand upon your feet. Is there speaking to Paul? For I have appeared to you. No, I'm sorry. Let me back up. This is what Christ said to Paul on the road to Damascus. But arise, rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you. And here's the purpose. Remember, we're answering, why was Paul so passionate about souls? I've appeared to you for this purpose, our Lord tells him, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Listen, friends, this was Paul's charge, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Oh, and I love this. And a place. A place. There's a place at the table of the Lord among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. But what is it, Paul? What is it that bothers you? Is it the economy? Is it politics? No, he has unceasing anguish in his heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For clarity, he's saying, I would be willing to go to eternal hell if it was possible. It's not. (laughs) Praise God. But I would be willing to go to eternal hell. I would be willing to be cut off from Christ. Why? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So in this speech, Paul is not just reminiscing. He's passing on a torch. And it's a torch of passion for all things Jesus. And so that these elders don't lose sight of the spiritual reality that is this life. And that these elders have been left in charge to oversee, to feed, to guide, and to direct the people of God. The people whom He paid a great price for in shedding His precious blood blood that we could not have shed. And in the power of the blood of Jesus is what brings forgiveness. It's what actually turns people from darkness to light. It's the hope and through the work of Christ that eyes are opened. Eyes are opened to see Jesus as infinitely valuable. And so that's what eyes are open to see. And the plan Not one of the plans. The plan is for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, to be the proclaimers of this beautiful gospel to this world. That's why we're here. Are you with me? It's why you exist, it's why you're breathing. It's why your heart is beating. 
I know we have a lot of reasons as to why we're here, and, and, and like, they're not all bad. But the primary reason that we are here is to make much of Jesus Christ. And so, I know I'm late. So the application, one of them, for the non-elders in this room, is to please pray for us. Please. We take seriously the call. Hold us accountable. Use this message as a point of reference. We're asking for your help. We want to be the shepherds that God has called us to be. We want to be men of courage. We want to be men that are dedicated to you and dedicated to the whole counsel of God. We pray often for God to continue to give us a heart for you. And I want you to pray that God would give you a heart for us as we make our way through this life together for the glory and the fame of Jesus. But first of all, in Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to close with this. Verse 36, 37. Because listen, I, I don't, I, and it's, if this sounds selfish, whatever, I, I don't, I can't afford for it, and I don't need you to shrink back. And listen, you don't need me to either. And in order for us to have the verse 24 of Acts 20 mindset of I don't count my life of any value except to finish. I want us to finish. And in order for me to finish strong, if I understand God's Word correctly, I need you. And in order for you to finish strong, if I understand God's Word correctly, you need me. And so we need one another. So hear this as we depart today. For we have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, that you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But listen. This is my prayer for us. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and persevere and preserve, excuse me their souls. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.